From Calvary Church of Santa Ana, this is the Calvary Life Podcast, the show where we share stories, tell jokes, and have discussions about faith, life, and God with people from Calvary Church. Here are your hosts, Eric and Matt. Welcome to another edition of the Calvary Life Podcast. My name is Matt Davis, and I am here with Eric Wakeling. Yes, uh, we are excited to have with us today one of our Calvary missionaries from Wycliffe Bible Translators and SIL. We have John Waters. How are you doing, John? Doing well. Thank you very much. Good to see you. Awesome. Uh, We are very excited to talk to you about your life, how you got into this whole thing of missions and some of just the the journey that God has had you on. And for people just to even be able to process some of what is God doing in them and and their calling and what 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 does God have uh, as a mission for for their life, too. So why don't you just share with us a little bit about how did you grow up? What was early years life? How are you connected to Calvary? Okay, yes, that's uh, early on. My parents uh, served with uh, Wycliffe Bible Translators and SIL International. We were down in Peru, so my first memories are in Peru and in the Amazon River Basin wow. among the people who spoke the Kokama language. They, uh, they, we lived along the Ukiali River, and the Ukiali and the Marañón Rivers joined together to form a river we all know as the Amazon. Oh, okay. So these are the headwaters, and the Ukiali ran through the forest, and Marion comes down from the Andes. So remember, as a kid, all my memories back there, I recognize that those are the first memories that were really my own memories, because my parents weren't uh, in those memories. Right, <laughs> they right. Were, they were around, but these were particularly engaging with the other kids in the uh, village mm. and various activities. So well, wait, wait, various, various activities. I think we, we want a little more because that sounds interesting. What are the various activities yeah, all that the a missionaries, kid does? They, they kind of throw these things out. You <laughs> yeah. know, like, and we hunted buffalo. It's right. like, yeah. like yeah. wait, wait, can well, we stop there for a second? Yeah. At four and five, I wasn't hunting too many buffalo. And there weren't buffalo there anyway. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but uh, you know, you, we, there was a, a box, a, me- a wood box that uh, my parents used to pack stuff to bring out to the, the place they were living. So it was empty. And I, Joaquin Joe, the next door neighbor boy who's, uh, he and I would play in there like we were riverboat captains because there was a riverboat that would go up and down the Ukiali River huh. you know, from Pucalpa down to Iquitos. So <laughs> we would pretend we were riverboat captains and uh, enjoy, enjoying our river life together. But then other things would happen, like there was a cow that did live on the other side of the island that a woman owned that she milked. Okay. And the, the rule in the village, as I understood it, was that cow shouldn't come over and eat their grass or their crops over on this side. They're basically fishermen, but they had some cro- planted, planted crops. Okay. So one day the cow showed up, and all the big boys took off the cow, and Joaquinjo got out of the box, box so fast, I, he was off with the big boys. And I tried to get out, and I finally got out, and I chased them, and they were well ahead of me, and they went into the forest chasing that cow. I went into that forest chasing the cow, and once I got inside there, I could hear their voices, and I headed for their voices, but it was the wrong turn. Oh, no. And... Pretty soon, I could no longer hear them, and I was lost in the forest there. I'd never been out there, and I remember it's interesting because I think about it. It must have gone in a big circle, but I went through the forest, kept walking, walking. It was kind of flood season, so I got to a certain point where now I kept going forward, but I was standing in like about a foot of water, and I was afraid of, are there any snakes down there with a lot of vines that I was catching my feet on? So, you know, you're a little kid thinking, there's snakes in here, snakes in here. Kept going and kept going and kept going. And uh, it was late, later in the afternoon, I could hear a, a voice off in the distance, 
And it was my father yelling my name because they didn't know where I'd gone. You know, uh, all the other boys had come back. They'd chase the cow. They were all relaxed, having fun. <laughs> and uh, I finally arrived. And when I saw my dad, I remember I just ran and jumped on him. And he hugged, he grabbed me and pulled me up. That was a like a little moment of salvation, you know. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. Sure. Growing up in an American context, most of the kids growing up, I want to be a baseball player. Oh, I yeah. want to be a doctor. What, in that context you grew up in, what was, what was the dream? I don't think I particularly had a dream when I was living out there. I lived out until I was seven years old. Okay. So it was mostly just day-to-day stuff, you know. You'd, uh, I remember one time a iguana was standing there looking out by the, the river, and I was, came down and saw him, and I had a stick, so I was beating the iguana uh, <laughs> as well as a little kid could yeah, do. Yeah, I mean, that's what that's, you do, right? That's really smart, yeah. <laughs> so the iguana just whacked his tail across my shins, and I was, you know, the little cut, cut my skin and bleeding a little, and... Uh, you know, I ran back home. You know, that was that was a big event. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Those kind of things happen, you know, day to day. Remember one time stepping on someone's pie pan full of uh, fish. The uh, Joaquin Joe's mom was. They lived up on stilts, so you'd have to climb up uh, this little little ladder and get up there. And I was, we were playing around up there, and I stepped on the edge of the pie pan, so all the fish went flying, landing all over the floor. I was so embarrassed, but. Uh, his mother just laughed and okay. laughed and laughed and thought it was funny. I don't know if that was the way she handled embarrassment. <laughs> right. Anyway, those kind of things happen in the daily life there. So from zero to seven, did you ever return to the States? Yeah, we did. Uh, right around the period of between five, six, we came to the States. So okay. I, I first time I sat in a schoolroom for maybe a couple months was in Long Beach, California. Okay. It was you know, like a kindergarten. Then yeah. we went back to Peru and I had the rest of my kindergarten down there in Yarina Cocha and, okay. and first grade. For, so first grade, yeah. I remember that we, we were about um, 12 of us, grades one through eight. And most of us were in first grade. Mm-hmm. Next year, we moved to Glendale, to La Crescenta, California. The Wycliffe office was in Glendale. Okay. And I was suddenly in a school of 600 kids. Yeah. Down there, I could go around with just shorts on, no t-shirt, no pants, no, no, no uh, socks. Yeah, no, no shoes. shoes. Yeah, and just carried my machete to class. So the class was over, I could go out and go into the forest with my machete. Be, be the iguanas. Yeah, be the No, I didn't seem to <laughs> stay away from those guys. Yeah, got your legs. Yeah. Hey, so I went, went uh, there in Locker Center. I, I always say the second grade was the worst year of my life because mm. adjusting to there was four, I think three, at least three, if not four, classes of our second graders there. And so many people, and I had to wear clothes all the time. I couldn't carry, you know, my, there was no cutlass around to carry. My parents didn't have one of those sitting around yeah. for me. So it was just a big adjustment. Big wow, adjustment. yeah. And that's probably something people don't think about as often for our missionaries as they probably should, is the family yes. dynamics, the effects it has on family. It, it does. And on, on your yeah. children, sometimes you just kind of ignore them, but it's having big effects. So for me, it was, it was a, I had to make some adjustments and... Uh, Determine what I was going to be doing in, in that kind of environment. Yeah. Yeah, and your your parents are kind of legendary figures, right? At some level, is, is that you know, and like some of these early missionaries right. come doing Bible translation work mm-hmm. uh, there, and did that? Uh, I mean, I'm sure I, I know eventually, probably that must have been inspiring. But how was that? You know, growing up, just yeah, well, about kind that. of, kind of, yeah. This, it's a good question because uh, early on, I we left Peru, and my sister, who's about two years, two and a half years younger than I. Uh, we 
would talk to each other and say, well, well, parents will go back in two years and we'll get back there, you know, kind of back to home. Yeah. But after a couple of years passed, we realized they're not going anywhere. And Cameron Townsend had asked my dad to kind of either become the full-time, first full-time person within the organization to represent Wycliffe to the churches and to recruit people and so forth. And it was a small, much smaller organization, about 300 people, I think, at that time. Mm-hmm. So it was, um, for me as a kid, wandering people would say, what's your dad do? I, I don't know. What he does. So I was a missionary kid growing up in Southern California, and my parents were working globally in a sense. We were recruiting people to go out to different parts of the world and, and uh, learn their languages and help them write them and translate scripture. Yeah, yeah. Like maybe this could be a good part to talk about some of the, the origins of Wycliffe in the early years since you mentioned Cameron Townsend. Mm-hmm. There's, I mean, there's a Townsend Street in Santa Ana. Yeah. You know, there, there are things that are related to Wycliffe and, and maybe even to share a little bit for, we probably have some people that just don't even know what does Wycliffe do. First yeah. of all, what does Wycliffe do? What is Wycliffe about? Yeah, well, Wycliffe's about uh, seeing the scriptures translated into all the languages of the world. Yeah. And uh, they usually start with the New Testament and if, you know then move on to the Old Testament if the community is interested in seeing that happen. So it's working with communities around the world or sometimes there's small groups of Christians, sometimes big churches. Yeah. And seeing that they have the scriptures and languages they understand and to use well. Yeah. And so then those those early years, Cameron Townsend is the, the founder, right? He's the, the founder, yeah. He's, okay. the, he's the one who got the vision for doing this down in Guatemala. Okay. And uh, he... Um, he, he was working uh, with the Cachiquel people in Guatemala on the translation of a New Testament. And he was near the finishing stages, and his wife was sick. So they came back to the United States in Glendale, I mean, in California. It was in uh, Santa Ana. And his sister was um, one of the founding members of Calvary Church. Okay. And so he came to stay with his sister, and they, the, the people at that time took care of him while he, or her, and while he f- continued to work to f- bring uh, that New Testament to completion. So right at the beginning of kind of, even before Wycliffe was born, Townsend was you know, engaged with this small group of Christians in Santa Ana yeah. that eventually became uh, Calvary Church. Yeah, that's incredible, right? Yeah. So, yeah. And so Calvary's had this long-standing relationship with, with Wycliffe, and you can maybe help me with the, the stat, but we, we have given as a church uh, to Wycliffe substantially, yes. and that history has been, yeah. uh, right? I don't know if you know any, like how many like Calvary missionaries have gone through Wycliffe, or what does all that look like? I mean, yeah, so I, many things. Yeah, I mean, I can I can give the general general statement, but I have not got. I had to go back and do the research to see what the numbers are in terms of people and funds and so forth. But what I what I do know is that Calvary Church is the church that has given the most in terms in an ongoing basis, not just like a one time, but year after year after year, and the most in terms of people uh, over the decades, over the last eighty years to the Ministry of Bible Translation of mm-hmm. any church in the world. Wow, that's great. That's really great. So it's quite a heritage. Yeah. Um, okay, so, John, you're uh, growing up then in, in La Crescenta, and then you're you're going through your, your years of, of uh, teen years and all of that, maybe, and when did you have a sense of your own personal call mm-hmm. to, to the mission field? Well, uh, to answer that question, I'd just say, first of all, that we were living in La Crescenta, but only up through seventh grade. Okay. So when I was 13, we had moved down to Santa Ana because the Wycliffe office had moved down there. So my parents were working over there in Santa Ana. And uh, it was while we're, that's when we just, uh, started going to Calvary Church okay. in 1960. And the emphasis the church had on missions uh, made me much more aware than what I had learned 
earlier okay. about the variety of missions and the variety of things that were going on. So it was in it was in high school years at one of the missions conference. Uh, I went, uh, you know, I agreed. I went forward in those days. We sometimes would go forward just to say at least I'm willing to consider, give serious consideration to serving in missions. And when I finished high school, I I was a student body president. So I remember saying in in my when I was being interviewed, I think by the register, I said, well, I'm, I'm hoping I'll be involved in, in Christian missions, you know, the future. So that's where I was in high school at the end of high school. Wow. Mm-hmm. Uh, OK. And then, so do you just go off to college, or what happens next? After yeah, this? well, I, I got, uh, I went off to University of California, Berkeley. I, initially, I was recruited to play some football, and uh-huh. so I went and played the freshman team that year, and which we only could play freshman. Freshman, uh, they didn't allow them to play in the varsity, and I went out for spring football. But by the time I finished spring football, I had lost my enthusiasm for it, and I won't go into all the details. I just decided it was time for me to move out of, move on from organized sports. I've been doing it for ten years, and. So I uh, quit, and that was one of the better decisions I made in life, I think. Um, But it was at Berkeley that I found that gradually I was involved with youth, uh, with a a crew uh, there at that time, Mm -hmm. that time known as Campus Crusade, um, and went uh, then was involved with the Presbyterian College Department, First Presbyterian Church there in Berkeley, Uh, but. A lot of things going on in class, and I was a major in history, and history was more challenging for me than science issues because of the way the history of the church was presented and so forth. And, and there are some very ugly things that human beings have done to human beings, including within the church and yeah. through the church. So my faith was greatly challenged at that time. Uh, I felt I was at a low point by the end of my junior year, my third year, and I saw an advertisement about you could fly to Europe for 13 weeks and you could be involved, uh, do, you know, no, no, no program, just you can fly to London and we'll pick you up in Amsterdam 13 weeks later and bring you home. So <laughs> I told my dad I had $1,000 saved and I'm going. So <laughs> I, just, I just left. Spent a couple of weeks in England and uh, with a friend there who was working with crew staff. That was the first team that had gone over for about a year over there. And uh, he put me on to this guy named Francis Schaefer. I had never heard uh, of yeah. him. So I started reading some of his stuff, and I wanted to take the time to read things by C.S. Lewis, too, and others, uh, with no assignments, and just read what I wanted to read. And yeah. then went over to wander around Greece and Italy, and then I, I thought I'd go see this guy, Francis Schaeffer, in Liberty, Switzerland. And I was going to go for three days. They said, no, you can only come minimally for 10 days. So I went for 10, I ended up with 30, uh-huh. staying there for a month. And that was a transformation for me. Uh, it renewed my faith, gave me time to think uh, through various issues. And at that point, I came back to Berkeley for my fourth year, different than I was in my junior year. Hmm. And uh, seriously considering what God might have. It might be missions, it might be something else. Yeah. So I hadn't fully settled that issue at that point. But the important point was my faith was, was renewed uh, wow. strength at that point. Wow, that's incredible. And that 13, 13 weeks, is a, that's a long time to just be wondering. Yeah. <laughs> you think about it in this day and age, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's great. Because I remember I did a like a three-week wandering yep. through Europe, and I felt like that was a long time. Yeah, <laughs> did, so, a lot of, did a lot of walking, riding a lot of buses and trains. You yeah, know? yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> so that's so great. So then your, your passion for Christ is revitalized, and you, you've had this early on commitment to missions. You grew up on the mission field. 
when do you just go? Yeah. You know, how <laughs> well, when I finish, when I finish, I always like to tell when I go to universities, you know, talk to university groups or something. Uh, n- most of us are, don't find God's calling by in a straight line. Yeah. We zigzag this way and then zag that way and so forth. So I was, uh, when I finished Berkeley, when I finished there, I knew there's three things I didn't want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't want to have anything to do with language. <laughs> and secondly, I didn't want having to do with administration. Okay. And I was interested in doing something internationally, but the bottom of my list was Africa. Okay. Okay. So good thing you avoided all of that. <laughs> well, I worked hard at it. No, <laughs> I just knew that's where I, where I was headed. But the first thing I had to figure out was what do I'm doing next. So I went to a counselor. They had free free uh, career counseling there. So I went and asked, and they said, well, "Okay, you best matched. Uh, you should study city planning." Huh. I said, oh, I don't want to do city planning. I worked in the library there that involved city planning and architecture and so forth. Then he said, well, the next thing then is to go into law. I said, no, I don't want to go into law. Well, the third thing on your list is ministry. Be a, be a minister. I said, oh, okay, maybe I'll try that. So I signed up to go to Fuller and went to Fuller for a year and two. What I found at Fuller, though, was the revolution for me because I found I enjoyed Greek. Hmm. I enjoyed Hebrew. Oh, this is language. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, that, so. that is a gift from God for anybody to enjoy Greek. <laughs> yeah, yes, it is. No, but it's, it's just made it clear to me. You know, I said, wow, I have to pay attention here. Yeah. Uh, that's, that was what it was. It was, it was a cognitive moment. It wasn't just, you know, an aha moment and say, I have to process this. Do you think that stuff with not wanting to do language was a subtle, you know, maybe non uh, aggressive form of rebellion against what your parents did and no that, not to my no. parents it was a it was a fairly not so subtle rebellion <laughs> against my second year French study a st- teacher uh, at uh, Berkeley okay yeah. yeah yeah and the way they set the program up at that time they were transitioning from one form of the program to the other and I got caught right in the middle okay so I, I didn't want to have anything to do with this stuff you know got well it, got it suddenly it looked very different this stuff Greek and Hebrew. Yeah, so you're getting excited about <laughs> getting it. Getting excited about it. <laughs> and Kathy wanted to. My wife, Kathy, she wanted to do nursing. She was. She was. She graduated from UC, UC San Francisco in, in nursing and public health, and she was working at LA County. So the both of us were kind of you know trying to figure out what we're going to do together in life, and we said we read this story. Uh, a guy named George Cowan had visited Nigeria and with he was with Wycliffe and SIL. And he talked to church leaders there, and they said, you know, we have churches and villages that speak various languages. There's no scripture there, so they have to use scripture of a major language. Mm-hmm. But it'd be a lot better if they had scripture in their language. And Kathy and I read that, said, well, that's interesting. Let's go try this SIL stuff out and see. Even though my parents were, you know, been there, I didn't, I, I hadn't really tried this stuff out. I didn't think that was really the place I would be headed. Hmm. So we went off that summer and got training, and we both finished and said, yes. We both enjoyed it. Wow. Both enjoyed the linguistics. And we just started going. And before we knew it, we got some more orientation down in Mexico, went to learn French in France, and we were in Cameroon. Okay. October 1973. How do you choose? Like, how does, does someone choose that for you? How do, how does Cameroon get chosen? Yeah. Well, they would at the at the course in the summer they would print lists for continents and countries around the world, languages they knew that were needing translation or okay. where things had started and stopped and so forth. Well, Africa was the first continent on the list, on the first page, and the first country listed was Cameroon, okay. and the first language listed on there was Ejagam, 
Uh, a British couple had started, given about three years to it, and then health reasons, they had to go home. And four years, three years had passed, and no one picked it up. Mm-hmm. So we thought about three languages in Cameroon. So we said, well, let's see about Cameroon. Well, first, actually, I should back up there, though. Because of the article was about Nigerian churches, we thought we'd go to Nigeria. Mm-hmm. But Nigeria, at that point, decided not to give visas okay. for people in our line of work. Later, they gave some more, but at that point. Hmm. So we'll Those are to, bordering countries. They're too, bordering right? countries, yeah. so yeah. let's go to the next door. Yeah. And hardly anything was going on in Cameroon. So we arrived there in 1973, and uh, so I didn't, we didn't get to check the other two languages. Well, one language, somebody said, well, somebody else is working in it, which wasn't the case, but that was the information we had, you know, <laughs> misinformation. Yeah. And before we know it, looked at the Jagam area and said, well, let's go. Cool. Wow. So what's that like when you, you land, you're on the ground, you have some education under your belt, and now you're trying to reach these people, you're trying to... What, what was that adjustment like for you guys? Well, a lot of big adjustments. Uh, I mean, first thing you're trying to do is trying to move from depending on pidgin English, which we knew a little bit, and the, which they'd like to speak to the foreigner because you know, the foreigner couldn't understand a jagam. Mm-hmm. And ye, I'm trying to learn a jagam. Kathy's trying to learn a jagam. So... That takes time. You know, it takes a couple, two, three years to, uh, to learn all the different structures and the vocabulary and so forth of the Jagam language. Uh, we don't learn it all, but we probably moved at least up to level three of, out of level five. Does that does that start with like? Do you find people in that culture that you're actually sitting down with and say, "Teach me how to speak your language," or is this just kind of doing life with them and passing around, and you just see? Yeah, what you pick up. It's a combination of those, yes. So you take time, you have some You have some time that is allocated, at least this is what we did, allocated to just sit down and, and collect words because no one has ever written this language. There's no dictionary, there's no grammar. But of course, there is a dictionary and a grammar in everybody's head. So yeah. each one has a dictionary, their own dictionary, and they have their own grammar in their head. Yeah. And so what we have to kind of do is learn from them what's that dictionary and grammar. We write the words down. We try to help them develop an alphabet as we see. They look at the sounds that you use and so forth. And this is, these are different ways you could write it. And they don't have an alphabet. Not at that point. They don't write anything. So it's hard to work with a group of people that all of that's in their head, but they're not maybe organized enough to actually have it systematized. Yeah, it's, a, it's using the science of linguistics. Okay. So that's where the linguistics as a science helps you as you study the sounds they make and how they, how, what, what are words and what aren't words and how, how they put form in a sentence and so forth. So you work on that. That's where the linguistics is very helpful. And uh, that's where you start. And the other thing that happened to us is our daughter. We had a daughter born in January of that year. In Cameroon. In Cameroon. Okay. And, and then three months later, we're out there in... So anyway, won't go all the details, but just say she came down with meningococcal meningitis in May of that year. Oh. And uh, it was right on the edge. But fortunately, there was a German doctor about 90 miles away that we were able to find in the doc- hospital there who had seen these cases. He'd been working there about seven years. So he, um, he helped her go through it. And uh, that's Rachel, our oldest, you know. Yeah, yeah. So um, there's no signs. No, he said he couldn't guarantee what infa- impact it'd have on her, but it didn't seem to have much of anything that we can see. Yeah. Wow. So those were there's both the health issues and the language issues and the cultural issues then too. You know, when we first learn a language, you, know, you can learn to say hi, yeah. greeting, yeah. and then goodbye. You know, so you come up to greet somebody, say, hi, Matt, 
Goodbye, Matt. <laughs> That's the whole conversation. conversation yeah. <laughs> Most of my missions experience, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and where's the restroom, right? Yeah, exactly. So you try to add more vocabulary over time and learn how to ask some questions. What is this? What is that? How do you call this? How do you call that? Wow. So forth. And then we would have practice. So you'd go around and visit. And other times we'd have practice sessions with our language uh, teacher. We'd just say, let's try to converse. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we try to move from 10% in the language to 20 to 50 to where we could maybe 80% of the time we could be just using the local language. But that took, I'd say it took a couple of years to really get to that level of um, really just being able to sit there and discuss issues in the language and then have to say, let's stop. Can I, let's speak some English or pidgin English here. And so I figure out exactly what we're talking about. Oh yeah. It's clarifying. Yeah. Asking, clarifying. Asking exactly. good clarifying questions, right? Exactly. Marriage and family pastor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What are we talking about? Yeah. <laughs> it's a good marriage tactic. Yeah. It helps. Yeah. And th- so the goal of all of this is translate the Bible into their language. Mm-hmm. What was the success for you in this culture with mm-hmm. these people? Did that happen? Mm-hmm. So our goal is to translate at that point is to trans- help them translate the New Testament because they'll they'll be the actual translators. Mm-hmm. We'll never we'll never speak the language as a real speaker. You, you've done enough work with putting things together that came from China or Korea or someplace. And, Ikea. And, I, and you yeah. read the instructions yeah. and you read the instructions and say, I don't understand what this person's saying, but apparently they were their only English speaker around. Right. So, right. you know, we, we don't want non-English speakers translating scripture into English. So in this case, we want to find the Jagam people. So that takes time to find people who are committed and who, who have an interest and a commitment. Um, so, and the other thing is, is to help them benefit from the fact that their language is a minority language. The government's kind of ignoring it. How can they benefit learning to read their language, use their language in additional ways that they already use it? Hmm. So, um, we had, the results were the New Testament was completed and dedicated in 1997. Um, they were, especially on the Cameroon side where we lived, the Jagam people are split between Cameroon and Nigeria, about 50,000 plus in Cameroon, 70,000 plus in Nigeria. Hmm. And we lived in the Cameroon side and worked primarily working with their leaders and village chiefs and, you know, their, their elite and their people in the village uh, on their language. And yeah. so they, the later there was a recording of the whole New Testament into a jagam. The Jesus film was put together by the, by, the, by the committee taking the Gospel of Luke and so forth. So they had a Jesus film by 2000, the whole New Testament recorded orally in 2009. And all, both of those have served. Wow. I, I, I was just curious. When you're, when you're with a group of people like this, are you hoping to translate the Bible and then win them over to Jesus? Do you win them to Jesus and then now their curiosity has peaked and now they want to translate the Bible? How does, what's the order? Okay, now where we went, there were churches already. Okay. So they were, but they were using English, King James English, and uh, there was nothing in Pigeon English either. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so, um, they were always having <clears throat> most of the people as they would read, you'd listen to the sermons that were preached off English and you realize these people really do need the scriptures and they had cultural issues that were not Western cultural issues that really need, they need to consider them in the light of scripture. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and then of course there were plenty of people who weren't Christians too. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we ended up in a place where there were no Christians, some places, we would work with people who are willing to work with a holy book and start there. A lot of people in South America, for example, when they were working with people who were, who were the church hadn't reached, 
uh, you would work with the people who were there. And often through the process, they would come to faith. I would say the people that worked on the translation of the Jagam New Testament were strengthened in their faith. And the main translator, he, he knew the whole New Testament in his own language, in a way that has made him different. It did bring significant transformation in his life. So you see these processes, depending on where a person is on their journey, uh, it's hard to do the translation and be resisting God. That's right. Mm-hmm. But you may not exactly agree with everything you're translating yet. That takes time, and, and um, they have questions and so forth. Yeah. I have one other. Just uh, on an emotional mm-hmm. feeling level, it's 1997. The Bible has now been translated. Mm-hmm. What, what does that feel like? And even just your relationship with God in mm-hmm. that moment of like finishing something so significant. Well, it's extraordinarily satisfying. It can be terrifying too, in this way. We as Christians, we we uh, as Christians, we believe it's important to translate Scripture, and we believe that the Scripture that is translated into the language, so like scripture is translated into English, this English translation is canonical. This is a standard. We don't need to go all go back to Greek. We don't need to all go back to Hebrew. We don't teach that in churches. Mm-hmm. We say this English translation is sufficient for us to get to know God. Yeah. So same with the Ajagam. So when the man from the Bible side held the Ajagam New Testament up and said, this is the word of God for the Ajagam people. I had this, suddenly, my heart just sank. Huh. The reason being, I knew all the choices we had to make. Yeah. It isn't just a straight line. You're dealing with all kinds of semantic issues, issues of meaning, and what word is best here, what word is best there, how does this phrase work, how does that phrase work? And we had to make choices. You couldn't have all multiple choices, pick which line you want to read. So we knew it's not a perfect, well, the way, you know, you taught me about God, in the sense that we from the West, particularly if we have a certain personality, God should fit certain boxes, a certain square, you know, and he should fit certain measurements. But God, the creator of the universe, is not troubled by realms of semantics, you know, what people are trying to communicate. I mean, he's dealing with, what, one to two trillion star galaxies now, they say. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for, for a human being who's struggling with a little bit of semantics, he knows what's going on in the heart and what we're trying to communicate. And after about 30 seconds after thinking about that, I suddenly had this reassurance from the Spirit of God just saying, like, all right, John, I'll take care of it. It's you, we'll use it. You know, yeah. It'll be used in the churches. Yeah. And it's had that impact. So you have these emotional kind of roller coasters sometime. But that day overall was just uh, incredible. Yeah. And the Jagams were the ones who organized everything, you know. They're the ones who organized and did the work on the Jesus film. They're the ones who organized and did the Faith Comes by Hearing recording of the whole New Testament. Wow. It's in their hands. That's, that's the other beautiful part of it. Yeah, that's such a, uh, sometimes ministry is not uh, tangible. Right. You know, but when, I think in this Bible translation kind of work, that's where you have a sense of, wow, this is an actual completed project. It is, yeah, <laughs> it, it is, exactly. Yeah. That's nice, I bet. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so now the whole time you're also raising a family, mm. you're doing all this. I mean, did you have to, were your children with you the entire time? Did your children go to boarding schools, things like that? Like what's, what kind of, what's the, the toll on the family and how does that, mm-hmm. that play out? Yeah. For, it varies from family to family and, you know, person to person. A lot, I think I've 
learned over time, I think the biggest contributor to the health is the attitude of the parents mm. about what's going on. Um, the children pick that up, and uh, if the kid, the parents are really uh, enthused about it or committed to it, and not don't see this as suffering and everything's yeah. hard, and, but yeah. this is a this is really a privilege. Yeah, the kids pick it up. This is a privilege. Now it still has an impact on them. Obviously, they're not growing up in Southern California. Uh, we well, that, has, that has an impact too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, you got you hit the nail on the head because we start comparing, we realize okay, yeah. they don't know maybe the difference between a couple towns in Santa California, but there's all kinds of issues going on here. Yeah. Uh, the 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 um, for us because uh, early on, uh, see, I went and did graduate studies then at UCLA. Mm-hmm. So when I came back, the group there in Cameron wanted me to kind of head up our research group, our academic, our language studies unit in the Cameron and Chad. So that started a whole nother process. But before that, we were doing a, some schooling in the, at home, in the village. Mm-hmm. Then when we got into the city, we put them in a school. They were okay. with us. It was a day school. Yeah. When we went on to Ni- Ni- uh, Nairobi to kind of do work for all of the Africa region, our oldest daughter went to boarding school at yeah. the Rift Valley Academy. Yeah, that's at least not too far away. Not too far away. Yeah. And our two kids, uh, the, the next two, went to uh, Rosalind Academy, which was a day school again in Nairobi. Oh, okay. So we didn't, we didn't struggle in those. The one thing where we noticed the impact was probably the transitions, the moving. Our two daughters were old enough each time to, it, it kind of, they kind of went through them. But our son, I think, was most impacted. Uh, Matthew felt it uh, most, especially leaving Cameroon, going to Nairobi, but having a half year in Santa Ana, it was just a jumble year for him, the yeah. kind of uh, fourth, fifth grade. Yeah. And it impacted him in various ways. But <laughs> he's he's doing well these days. You know, he's just, he worked Good. things out. And I'm sure he looks back on that. He, he, he does have, a, like he says, I have a, you know, a, as a fear of abs, absent parents, you know, so to speak. Right, I was right. traveling a lot right. during those times. So then this all keeps going and you, you start to then head into leadership roles, leadership in Africa, but then eventually to leadership uh, of the whole, the whole shebang, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so for you, um, just kind of tell us a little bit about what is that like to take on that role of leading was it technically Wycliffe or Wycliffe SIL or, or how's that, how's that work? Yeah, you know, yeah. even I think even that's maybe something to help clarify for our people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It would be, um, the, the work of SIL is the technical work. Yeah. Uh, the linguistic research, the technical work of translating scripture. That's, uh, Wycliffe and traditionally and still largely raises, uh, tries to recruit people for mm-hmm. the ministry and for the, for the ser- service. Uh, raise people up to pray and raise uh, people to give funds for projects and so forth involving translation and language work. So uh, the first role I had was Africa region and to move from particularly concentrating on Cameroon and Chad to all of Africa, you know, any of these kind of adjustments take time Mm -hmm. because now you start traveling and you've seen the work and eventually we had work in 20 countries in Africa and I think when I started it was 14 or 15 already. And you begin to look at what people are doing in different countries. You had no idea what they were doing. And there's a lot of variation. So you, and you're, trying, you're trying to visit each place at least once a year. Some places you went a couple times a year because of issues that they were facing. So it was a lot of travel and hugely educational. And I felt like after doing that about six years, I finally got a handle on, okay, this is what we're trying to do in Africa. And this is what we could do. 
Mm-hmm. So I was going down that track uh, before I ended up going into the international role for all the world. Right. And that one was really bizarre because, you know, you, you're sitting there thinking. Well, <laughs> you just said for all the world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just taking that in and that, that's a nice ambiguity there. <laughs> double, <laughs> double meaning there. Yeah. Uh, you say, well, what does it mean to lead an international organization? You know, this is bizarre. Yeah. So those are the times I really, I hadn't quite gotten into the role. And I was asking myself that question. I happened to run into this book by uh, Collins and Porus on, uh, on, um, on, you know, where they discuss uh, these companies that acted in, uh, in big ways. Okay. And as I read that book, uh, I began to realize I could see a lot of what SIO was. And Wycliffe, on its side, there, I, was, I was serving even in Africa as Wycliffe International uh-huh. Africa Area Director and SIL International Africa Area Director. Wycliffe International is not the same as Wycliffe USA. Wycliffe USA, the one we know in the United States, yeah. is a part of Wycliffe International. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and I don't want to get too lost in I know the this is why people get confused. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and that's, that's why here you just talk about Wycliffe and think about Wycliffe USA and not get confused with all right. the other. So, and then uh, SIL is one homogene, one big organization of individual members. Okay. Wycliffe International is an organization of organizations. Got it. Because each of the Wycliffe organizations have their national board and so on and so forth. Okay. So, so they're, they're different organizations or structured differently and so forth. Anyway, so I was doing that in Africa and then I hadn't quite finished. And I was reading this book by Collins and Porus on, uh, and I began to think if they, if these organizations, these companies can have this big, hairy, audacious goals as they would be referred to these yeah, enormous yeah. goals, taking big risks. Why can't we? Because what we were facing was we were, we were at the, we were, it was the greatest moment in Bible translation history at that point. Yeah. There was about 1,300, 200, 300 uh, translation projects going on in languages around the world. Uh, the pace was the greatest. Every 20, 25 new translation programs were starting every year. Yeah. But we were looking at 3,000 more languages that needed the same. Yeah. Potentially. And you map that out, you say, this is going to take to 2,150 or 2,120. Who even knows what the world will be like then? Is, and do, do we need to wait that long to do this? But if we depended on ourselves, we could never do it. All the Bible translation organizations in the world couldn't do it. But maybe now God has this resource in the church, because in Africa, the church in 1910, over 100 years ago, was about 12 million people, or about 9% of the population. Now in 2010... A hundred years later, it was about 500 million people wow. and about 50% of the population of Africa. Hmm. So wow. would, would, would claim in one way or another to be a Christian. Mm-hmm. And among them were young men and women who had gotten great education, who could, be, could lead translation programs. So anyway, you just started, I started thinking about those things and saying, we've got we've to think differently and we can't do it, but we can posture ourselves before God in a kind of a posture of prayer. saying, so we want to contribute what we can. Help us understand what our contribution will be in the coming years. Now 20 years have passed, but what our contribution will be um, as an organization, a set of organizations to seeing everybody have some scripture yeah. and their language as needed. And so there was a vision that came out of that, right? Yeah, like, it's a vision. And we called it Vision 2025. We said, yeah. let's, let's see if we can at least have... 
every language that needs one will have something in progress by the year 2025. Wow. And that's multiple ministries and organizations all joining together, right? Exactly. And it's in a sense, we, I mean, I envision it's the whole world global church. Yeah. Yeah. And trying to get churches engaged, all the churches don't realize it. And the church, as I said, the history of church is not always a glorious thing. And one of the other things inside the church is our social Every country, you know, different social values. So this ethnic group doesn't like that ethnic group, and they're both in the same church or denomination. Then, yeah. you know, how do they rise, transcend those issues as Christians because they serve the transcendent God who's above yeah. all those yeah. issues? That's a hard thing for us humans to get over, even as Christians. Yeah, and I know I, I know you won't sort of toot your own horn about this, but from what my what I've heard about this, my understanding, I mean, you have many huge conferences of people talking about this, about these expressions of finishing the task, finishing mm-hmm. this, doing all this, this vision 2025. These are things that the entire world is working on in, in Christendom. And, uh, and really, and, and I don't want to put too much credit to you cause I know that'll be hard, but at the same time it was kind of your idea. And <laughs> that's amazing to think about, right? That we're sitting here talking, Matt, to this guy who had this, this leading from the Lord and this idea that we can do this. It, it feels prophetic. Yeah. Uh, you read in the word, every tribe, tongue, and nation, and God is tearing for some reason, right? And this is it. He wants the word to go out. And yeah, you, you have something to do with that. That that's the best I think that any of us could hope for yeah. is that we contribute towards yeah. God's kingdom coming. Yeah. Well, that was the, the when the, that vision, I, yeah. I like to call it that because a vision is, it's not something we could control. Right. I couldn't control it, but a dream, something it could make it a prayer. Yeah. You know, a plea before God. So, and it was 1997. And when I f- wrote that, I was reading this book from Nairobi to London to Los Angeles. And when I arrived in Los Angeles, I'd finished and I'd been making these notes and I went and I said, I got to try this out because our organization is conservative and there are a lot of people who are highly educated and they're going to be very, very wary of any mm-hmm. kind of promotional stuff. Yeah. So I tried it out of a couple of people. And the first person I tried it says, wow, I want to join that. Really? Okay. <laughs> and I tried it on a few other. And then I went to our SIL center. I just talked about it, you know. Because this is this is going to be in translation. It's also going to mean people are going to have written forms of their language or have other benefits too that yeah. come along with the, the scriptures. And I found only positive responses there. And I reported to reported to somebody else in the within the structure. But I got to talk to both the Wycliffe International Board and the SIL International Board, and present this. They said, if you ask me to become the executive director of both international organizations, this is the question I'll be asking: What will we have to do? to see that a translation program is at least in progress in every language that needs it by the year 2025. That's my mm-hmm. question. Yeah. And it just animated the two boards. They, wow. We were supposed to have a 15-minute time, and we took about three hours <laughs> because they wanted to enter into the discussion. Yeah. And that shows the power of questions. Yep. Questions rather than you know, some kind of statement, mm-hmm. a question that makes other people start thinking about it. What would it mean for me? How could we do that? What could we do over here? Yeah. So it, it, for me, it just I realized then I just have to let it go. It can't be mine anymore. Yes, I, you know, I, I uttered the words. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But eventually you have to say, it cannot come through me. I can't be Grand Central Station. Yeah. It's got to be, everybody's got to figure out what it means to them. Mm-hmm. And they have to work in their context because we work in a thousand different contexts, 2,000 mm-hmm. different contexts around the world. And they have to think about it, have to work on it. 
and contribute their part. Ultimately, mm-hmm. it has to be the Spirit of God who works through all the organizations right. as they dream their dreams and work work with what God's given them. And it's been astounding to see what God has done for them. Yeah. Yeah. And, and for most of us, for most of the time, we're probably going to be the ones receiving the question, not asking the question. You know, And so I think, too, for all of us to develop an openness to when we hear a question like that, what if... You know, what would happen? How, what would it take to reach, you know, to finish this by or get it started get at it least started. by yeah. 2025? Or, yeah. or I think even in our context at Calvary, what would it look like for every single one of us to have reached one person with the gospel by Easter of 2020? And that would I mean, that picture would look like our church doubling in size in believers, yeah. you know, that yeah. people that don't know Jesus would now know him and have a relationship with Christ and be adopted into God's family. And so just, you know, most of us are going to be receiving that question. And so we probably have to have hearts that can be willing to be the receiver and listening and moldable and right. Yeah, you got it. And of course, uh, there are those, I got interesting letters they never got any hate mail, but, um, (laughs) Uh, people, you know, write, wrote lovingly, but they wrote uh, enthusiastically for other perspectives and, yeah. uh, and, and yeah. opinions, and and then we're not going to be involved in this uh, stuff, and so on and so forth. But uh, that was a small group. There's always those who are struggling with these kind of things, and and often, you know, there's good reasons. I, I thought, all the questions that came back to me as I looked at them and thought through them, there'd be I could pick out some point in my journey in life that I would have asked the same question if somebody had come up with this. I would have said, are you kidding sure. me? Yeah. This, that, and the other. Because everybody's lurking in a different context, different situation. Yeah. And you come back with something like this and say, this guy's out of his mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for good reason on one level. You yep. know? But trying to get them to, th- like myself, I'm trying myself and them to think more grandly about the yes. transcendent God who we supposedly say he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns all the universe. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Yeah. If he's really there, present, and has all of this, now he may not want to do that by 2025, but that's, that's his choice. That's yeah. not mine. But if we can just say, hey, we're ready, open our eyes to what we should be doing. Mm-hmm. And uh, God, God has been gracious to see you know, what we've seen. And you know, I'm, I'm, I'm way out of the limelight now. No one's writing letters to me and saying, you know, <laughs> hey, what should we do here? What should we do there? Yeah. And it's fantastic to just listen to what people are saying, to see the, yeah. the talk. It's way beyond me anymore. Mm-hmm. Well, it's uh, really incredible. I think we're definitely going to have to have you on again in a, you know, when you're next in town in a couple of years or whatever that is. But, uh, you know, because there's so much. But how can people, if they are um, just engaged by this, mm-hmm. uh, this idea, even a Vision 2025 or with what Wycliffe SAL are doing, mm-hmm. how can they find out more and engage? Yeah, well, the, you know, the best place is to go to the websites, right? Yes. So I, I would suggest that people go to Wycliffe Bible Translators. If they write that in there, go to the U- United States, USA, uh, Orlando okay. site, and just visit the various uh, various uh, pages that are there. Yeah. If you want to know about the language and the work that SIL does, the research it does, go to SIL, S-I-L dot org. Okay. And there's also the Ethnologue, Ethnologue. Yeah. So just spell it out, uh, dot org. Okay. And those two are, it will show you what SIL has been doing in terms of language research and so on and so forth. And we'll put those links on our page so yeah. people who are looking that up, they can find it. Find it. That's great. 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 That's good. Well, thank you so much, John. We're excited about what hey, God's it's doing. It's a privilege awesome. to be with you guys. Thank you. Thank you, Eric and Matt. Got it. See ya. Thanks again for joining us on the Calvary Life Podcast. If you enjoyed our show this week, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. 
If you want to learn more about Calvary Church or share any of your thoughts, check us out on our website at calvarylife.org or find us on one of our social media accounts. We're on Instagram at Calvary underscore church, Facebook at Calvary Church of Santa Ana, and Twitter at Calvary Life. Calvary Life.